This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. I am so excited about my guest today. Uh, It is the lovely Tara Brock. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Tara before we get into the interview. Um, She is a leading Western teacher of Buddhist meditation, emotional healing, and spiritual awakening. She has practiced and taught meditation for over 35 years with an emphasis on Vipassana, mindfulness or insight meditation. Tara is the senior teacher and founder of the Insight Meditation Community of Washington. A clinical psychologist, Tara is the author of Radical Acceptance and True Refuge. And for anyone who's read my books, they know how important Tara is to me and how wonderful her books are. So... Please visit her at tarabrock.com, which will be linked um, in the comments section. And Tara, thank you so much for being with me today. Total delight, Chris. Yeah. So I figure, I know that a lot of um, listeners that tune in are newer on their path. I have some established practitioners as well, but I feel very passionate um, working with those that are a bit newer. So I thought, even though I know you've written about it, and I'm sure you've talked about it time and again, would you mind sharing a little bit about your own introduction to the spiritual path, how you came to it, and um, and along with that, any insights or um, wisdom you might want to share for those who are new to their own paths? I'd be glad to, and I love talking about it, actually, because... You know, it still feels very fresh, what really brings us and deepens us on the path. And, you know, for me, it was partly in, you know, when I was in high school and college, feeling the sense of uh, that yearning for what I intuited was here, like loving more fully and really discovering truth and, you know, like living fully. And there was the suffering, you know, just feeling that deep down sense of being, um, separate, not okay, and so kind of just scanning around what's really going to help. And so that that's kind of it. And, you know, I had different uh, experiences that felt like, oh, so this is part of the path, and nature was a big one, and loving other people was a big one, and I had spurs like, like psychedelics and sure. yoga and meditation actually started being the thing. So... The common denominator, I guess, for me and so many is that um, 
the suffering was this story that something's wrong with me, that I'm not okay. And in spiritual practice, and I joined an ashram, and so I was practicing in a spiritual community with a lot of other people, which makes it easier. Mm. I had repeated glimpses or introductions to a who I was that was in no way bound by that story. You know, I just started getting those tastes of, oh, so there's um, a really sincere awakening heart here. There's awareness here. And I started more and more trusting this is, this is it. Mm. And I'd say that if there's one theme over the years, it's been a sense of shifting from believing the old story about myself to trusting something essentially good mm. in myself and others. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, something that we all share. Uh, and as you're saying that, I completely relate because I look back before I, I guess you could say officially stepped onto a spiritual path, but I recognized times earlier in my life. And um, I mean, I'm talking about like times when I was skateboarding or I'm a musician. So playing music where I was completely connected to this place, but I had no spiritual context to wrap around it. So, you know, I would just think, oh, that's a neat experience, whatever. But yes, as as I started practicing and, and learning and reading and and visiting sanghas and so forth, and started to put some language to the experience. It, it was pretty incredible, actually. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Um, but, and you're right. That is, the, that is the hub of it. It's like we already are on a path. Right. Already, you already were waking up, but a practice gives it enough of a regularity and some context. I know for myself, when I went into college, mm. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, I was on a track to be a lawyer, and when I graduated, um, I moved into an ashram. So something happened in there, yeah. and it happened in nature, and it happened with friends, and it happened in yoga, but it woke me up. Yeah, yeah. I was actually two credits away myself from finishing a degree in substance abuse counseling. In the middle of this internship, um, I had a few months left, and I just felt pulled to stop and leave, which mm. seemed, you know, completely counterintuitive to what I had known up to that point, because, you know, you got to go to school, do this, do that. And it just, I knew in such a deep way, it wasn't what I was meant to be doing. And I didn't know what I was meant to be doing, but I just honored that calling. And, and it's odd, you know, life is strange, but here I am today by tuning in and, uh, and bringing practices such as meditation and learning from the great wisdom traditions and the teachers such as yourself and many others who've come before you and um so i kind of share that to say again going back to so anyone else who's listening who's just kind of on their on their way very very new to the path i i appreciate the beginner's mind approach even for those of us who've been on it a little while but is there any particular insights or um you know, just, just wisdom that you would offer them uh, as they're f kind of feeling their way around? Well, I was just taking in what you were saying, Chris, mm. about how there you were almost graduated and something in you had this yearning and intuition that pulled you, that let you go in a different direction, that let you follow mm. your heart. And I'm remembering, um, you know, there's a woman who's a palliative caregiver who has accompanied thousands and thousands of people as they're dying. Mm. And she said that the greatest regret of the dying is I didn't live true to myself, mm. that I lived 
according to the expectations of others or the society's expectations or my internal shoulds. And I feel like your example um, and mine some is that we had the it was grace, it was a blessing that we actually listened uh, deeper than to the expectations. So that would be one uh, encouragement for those that are new is to give yourself permission to step out of the box of some idea of how your life should be mm. and really listen. Listen to what someone's described as your deepest aspiration. Mm. You know, what is it that really brings you alive, that you really love? And, and it takes courage to listen. And then the second thing to mention is that it does take a practice, some regular systematic way of training yourself to pay attention because we are so conditioned to have our minds not only distracted but uh, a negativity bias that keeps us actually going towards things that keep us small and keep us feeling that we're defective in some way or that keep us judging others so a practice and when when I say a practice and I know you are the same Chris some way of coming into presence, yes. some way really coming back into our bodies and our hearts so we know we're here. Mm. And one teacher said that the hub of the spiritual life is intention, knowing what matters, and attention, learning to train ourselves to be right here. Absolutely. There's something I, I plan on talking to you about later, and we will come back to this, but it's coming to mind right now. Um, because I'm, I'm actually taking this wonderful offering that you and Jack Cornfield, another incredible teacher, have put together with Sounds True. Um, and you talk ab during that about being at home wherever we find ourselves. So I'm jumping a little ahead. But as you're sharing that, it makes me think a very simple practice that I absolutely love from Thich Nhat Hanh, the wonderful Vietnamese Zen monk, is so simple of just... Breathing in, mentally noting to yourself that I've arrived. And as you breathe out, mentally noting, I am home. Mm. I've arrived. I am home. And that kind of makes me think of, you know, at home, wherever we find ourselves. Um, so anyway, that just came to mind from you sharing that. I'm jumping a little ahead, but um, thank I you. It. I love it. I love it. And it's kind of wonderful to bring that in right at the beginning of us yeah. talking. Because in a way, if each of us paused for a moment and said, what will let me feel at home in this moment? Mm. Yeah. And what we find out is that our thought, if we're thinking, we're separated. You know, the thoughts create the abyss. The thoughts separate us. And if we come back into our senses, like if you just pause, if you're listening right now, and say, okay, let me just feel the body. Mm. Let me feel this breath. Let me listen to these sounds. Immediately, there's an intimacy. We know we're more here. Mm. I love that. And and you actually shared uh, during that section, since we're on it, we might as well chat a little about it. Yeah. Um, but you'd shared um, a really powerful quote from Maya Angelou. And it's, she, she had said, I long, as does every other human, to be at home wherever I find myself. And... And I love that. And then you went on to to really elaborate on that, and uh, and it was it was really a profound teaching. I I know the course is well underway now, but I believe for anyone listening, if they're interested, I think you can still go to Sounds True and and sign up. Um, I highly recommend checking it out. I think I have just two sessions left myself. It's been wonderful. 
Um, There's going to be another round actually offered in a, in a couple of months. And if you uh, get on my email list, I can, whoever's listening, I can let you know when it's available. But I wanted to also share, because what you brought to mind is that one of the deepest understandings that's helped me is the sense that our real sickness is homesickness. Mm. Is that when, in some way, when we uh, are at war with ourselves and we're judging others, it's really um, the pain of it is we're homesick. We've left home. So just that practice of being at home wherever we are, um, what freedom. Yes, know? yes. That's so important, and and that's it. That that sense of separation. Um, I I you know I write very uh, candidly about my own pain and struggle in my life and battles with addiction. Um, and the the overwhelming sense of aloneness and suffering that I experienced. I'll even go back. I've I've kept a number of journals um, that I would write in throughout the years. Usually when I was actively under the influence, mm-hmm. and it was so angry and it was so alone and um you know often very angry towards god though i had no idea of what god was um and i know that's that's a a very loaded word for some people but just sharing my experience and it was to the point where i would often isolate during these times and i would live in my own apartment and just so i didn't feel so alone I would walk out and I was in, it wasn't a, a city. It was a little town called Middletown, Connecticut. And there's a main street there where there's always people walking. And I would just go for, even if it was a 10 minute walk, a loop around this main street, just to pass by a person, not to talk to them, but so I didn't feel so alone. It was a brief, it was like I could breathe while I was out there, but inevitably to return back to the apartment in just this overwhelming sense of separation. And that's where I found not only from the Buddhist tradition, because I think there's wonderful teachings from all of the great wisdom traditions that help us reconnect and and begin to dissolve that sense of separation. But Buddhist speaking, um, let's talk about being a lamp unto yourself. Um, I think that that fits in pretty nicely here. And if if you don't mind, um, to preface that, I want to share an excerpt from your book, uh, True Refuge, if, if that's all right with you. Cool. So you write in that uh, when the Buddha was dying, he gave a final message to his beloved attendant, Ananda, and to generations to come. Be a lamp unto yourself. Be refuge to yourself. Take yourself to no external refuge. What did he mean? Our ultimate refuge is none other than our own being. There is a light of awareness that shines through each of us and guides us home. We are never separated from this luminous awareness any more than waves are separated from the ocean. Even when we feel most ashamed or lonely, reactive or confused, we are never actually apart from the awakened state of our heart-mind. Ah, oh, that's so beautiful and so true. Like I said, I, was, I felt that disconnect, yet a part of me also knew there was something more. So... Please, if, if, if you wouldn't mind elaborating on that, I, w- I think that's so important. You know, I often use the word trance, Chris, mm-hmm. as you probably know, that we spend most of our time, if we're not really paying attention in the moment, in a kind of virtual reality, in a trance. And the self is in here and the world's out there. And there's generally a story about what we need to do to be okay and what around the corner is threatening and so on. We also have a a trance about um, 
spiritual awakening, which says that it's down the road, that it probably can't happen to us, that it mostly happens to people that have done, you know, three-year retreats or the Buddha back 2,500 years ago. And the most liberating perspective that you can have, and you can choose this, is to begin to sense, oh, that awakened state is intrinsic to what I am. And it's just a matter of relaxing back. It's a matter of, instead of pedaling on the bicycle forward and racing from the moment, stop pedaling, just relax back. So the big delusion in trance is that we're on our way somewhere else. And the freedom of these teachings, be a lamp unto yourself, is to get that the light we're seeking and the love we're seeking and the truth we're seeking, it's right here. It's right here. Now, I want to add one comment to that, which is there's a way that spiritual ego can actually um, misunderstand this and say, I am a lamp unto myself, that the self is the one that owns the spirituality and knows, and that we can't um, look towards and find in our engagement with others the truth. And in fact, as much as we're a lamp unto ourselves, we're a lamp unto each other. So part of me waking up is feeling the way that spirit and creativity shines through you right now. I mean, that's part of my path. Yeah. And I'm not just being flattering. It's like that is as much the way the lamp shines through as through this body-mind. So it can be misunderstood in an egoic way. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah that's a very important uh, caveat to that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and and I again, noting that a lot of listeners are newer to the path, it, it can seem so overwhelming at times. I know when I first stepped on, like there's so many different teachings and offerings and one tradition says this where another seems to contradict it, yet they kind of sound almost similar in a way. And, um, but, but letting be is a phrase I've heard and, and I like that just letting be relaxing. Um, though I, so part of me then, you know, I hear that and I think to some of the times where speaking for myself, when I was caught in active addiction, I was in horrible, you know, just mentally, emotionally, the whole, it was terrible. So to let be in a moment like that where you are really caught in these reins is, I'm not going to say impossible because nothing's impossible, but it's pretty close. It's very difficult. So that's something I wanted to to talk to you about as well, um, particularly if we're going to speak in, in, in a Buddhist text, in Buddhist cosmology, um, there's what's called the realm of hungry ghosts. And mm-hmm. it talks about the torment of intense desire that can never really be satisfied. And that's you know something that speaks very, uh, very clearly to me, thinking back to those times, because it was this desire that just it never could be satisfied in in the twelve step fellowships. You know, they have a saying: one is too many, and a thousand is never enough. Mm-hmm. And boy, there is such truth to that. So, let, let if you don't mind, let's let's talk a little bit about that learning. But well, first of all, let's let's just talk about the the sat the dissatisfaction, the unsatisfactoriness when we are in those places, and how can we learn to find a way to to come out of them, to let be, to accept it. Yeah. So first I want to um, 
honor what you're saying about letting be, that in a way the most profound meditation is just letting everything be just as it is. Right. Really just allowing this life to unfold. And because we're so um, caught in, in grasping and resisting and struggling and controlling, there are some uh, ways of training our heart and mind that actually create the atmosphere that allows for letting be. Mm -hmm. So it really makes sense that you can't just be caught in an addiction and all that excruciating suffering and say, okay, I'm just going to let be. It just doesn't work. <laughs> right, right. Right. So given that, you know, there's different ways of understanding the suffering of, of desire. And desire itself is not only um, normal, natural, etc. It's an, a necessary, essential part of existence. Yeah. I mean, we wouldn't be here were it not for desire. Right. Universes get created because in some way, something in awareness wants to take form. You yes. know? So, so desire is not the problem. The problem is that the... Um, sense of self gets organized around wanting and having to have in a way that makes it so that how it is right now is not okay. Mm -hmm. There's not a capacity to uh, be okay with the moment. We have to have to be okay. And it gets created when our basic needs aren't met. And so we go about trying to fill the whole of the basic needs with substitutes, and the substitutes can't satisfy. They satisfy enough. Let's say the substitute is let's get approval because we don't feel loved. Getting approval is a temporary fix. We feel good for, you know, 10 minutes until we need to go and get our next fix of approval. And similarly, if it's a drink or if it's binging on food or whatever, there's a temporary sense of self-soothing. But... The suffering is that we have to have it again, and not only that, we end up feeling shame about the fact that we're hooked. So that's the Buddha described that as the second arrow. The first arrow is this unquenchable thirst, and the second arrow is the shame about it. And we, we bring the second arrow to um, ourselves when we feel needy or out of control, and so part of the shame, the pain of of strong desire and grasping and addiction is the sense of being a bad person. And so one thing I'll say is that it's not until we begin to let go of the second arrow, it's not until we begin to forgive that that addictiveness is there, that we can begin to heal the actual wound that's underneath it. The first step is to let go of the shame. And that's where it helps to be with other people. Because when you and I, when I can tell you, yeah, I spent a bunch of years addicted to food in a way that um, I felt out of control and I was ashamed of myself. And you can tell me about the excruciation of, of, of being completely compelled towards substance. We get that it's not my addiction. It's just the addiction, yes. the conditioning. And, and our hearts can hold it in a way that loosens up the grip of the blame so we can begin to say, well, underneath that addiction, underneath I have to have those drugs or that alcohol or that food or whatever it is, what's the real yearning? Mm -hmm. And, Chris, I've come to call this a kind of U-turn where we make a U-turn, that wherever we're fixated and every one of us, unless we're free, has some sense of, what we call if only mind 
And if only mine says, you know, if only I could get that job, or if only I could get the right partner, if only I could lose the 10 pounds, or if only I could whatever, then I'd be okay. Mm-hmm. That we've hitched our, our well-being to something. And the U-turn, and this is the basic way that um, I find is powerful in working with the hook of desire, is to get okay, I'm hitched to something out there, some some external in order to be okay. And then make a U-turn and bring the attention back to the place of wanting itself. Mm. And this is where we... So, for instance, with uh, one man who would, had came to a retreat and his girlfriend had broken up with him and in his mind, she was the one, and he really was devastated. He was never going to find love in his life. And um, and he just kept fantasizing and obsessing and so on. And we did the U-turn, um, and I said, just feel the longing. What What is it you're really wanting? And he, instead of saying, I want her, what's, what is the experience you're wanting? And the experience he wanted wanted was that sense of, of connection, a feeling, uh, a sense of belonging to something, of that warmth, of that kind of let go of the boundary and just spread out and be of kind of oneness. And the more I invited him to experience and say what he was wanting, the more he actually was touching into the fruit of the longing, what he really was longing for. So he was tracing back the desire. To its source. And what he came out of it saying, and he had to practice this a lot, was, you know, if he could every time do that U-turn and, and find that source, he said, I feel like the loving I'm yearning for is inside me. And I would like a partner and feeling that with someone else. But he wasn't grasping. So he was much more available in his next relationship to have that relational dance, but know that the loving was always and already here. So that's just an example of working with desire that's so powerful. Now, I I will say one other piece, and that is when it's addictive craving, there's always a fear in there. There's a fear that I can't handle this, and if I don't get what I want, um, you know, I'll be tormented. So in addition to tracing back the desire, sometimes we have to really offer inwardly um, a real sense of um, kindness and compassion uh, in order to be soft and open enough to be able to relax into the moment. Mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that practice. Um, <laughs> wow, it's beautiful. Uh, and I wish, um, as you're sharing it, I'm thinking back to so many times where that would have come in really handy for me. Um but better late than never, right? <laughs> I'm still here, which in and of itself is wonderful. And, and as are the people that are listening and watching. So um, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I feel like you've already talked a bit about this, but I don't know that there can be enough conversation around it, especially with the people that I tend to work with, which is finding that we're at war with ourselves, um, which is a big one. Um, for many of us, you know, we experience this constant battle in life it's it's internal and we're plagued with the thoughts of unworthiness and dissatisfaction um sometimes they're very loud sometimes they're subtle you know it might just be an underlying sense of disease but they're still there um 
let's let's talk a little bit about that. You know, I, I think we've already kind of talked in this ballpark, but um, even to this day, it's interesting. You know, ten, twelve years down uh, down the path of meditation. I still have these thoughts that come up, self-judging and self-incriminating. Um, it still happens. Not every day anymore. It's way better than it used to be, but it still happens. I'm grateful today that I can recognize them as thoughts and not you know, attach and identify with them more times than not. Sometimes I still lose myself in them, but it's again, it's way less than it used to be. So maybe we can talk about this. Why are we at war with ourselves? <laughs> What's going on there? Yeah, well, I'm I'm with you, by the way, because when I wrote Radical Acceptance, it came right out of my own experiences of realizing, you know, I was so far from being my own best friend, as one person put it, that I was so harsh with myself. And that then after years of uh, working with clients and students, I I came to sense this is the most pervasive suffering in the culture. It's what I I call the trance of unworthiness. And we might know we judge ourselves, but we don't often get how much that squeeze of something's wrong with me is part of everything. So that any interaction on some level, we're not free to be as spontaneous or playful or alive yes. because we're afraid we're not going to be the person that will be accepted by another. And even when it's not like the deep you know, I'm, I'm damaged goods, there's still a sense of not enough. And one of my favorite cartoons just has this dog talking to a psychiatrist saying, you know, it's always good dog this and good dog that, but is it ever great dog? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it kind of sums it up for me yeah. that we so often have underneath what's going on a sinking feeling of not meeting our own standards and you know when you say well how come it, it definitely mirrors our society that um, we're so competitive and when there's all these standards to meet, it's like you can't just assume to be acceptable and lovable you have to look a certain way and achieve a certain way and if you're not in the dominant culture I mean I think of what it's like to, if you're a person of color, if you're not of the, a higher class, sure. there are so many messages in our society that say that you're less than, that it's easy to internalize them. So, so many of us, whether it's because of uh, what the dominant culture says or our parents in some way giving us the message of, if you want to be loved, if you want to be accepted, be less needy or be more um, fun to be around or lose weight or be whatever. So we, we internalize that. And often, you know, it's very easy. I, I feel like the deepest truths are the ones we forget, which is if we aren't kind towards ourselves, we don't feel love towards the life that's here, we can't really embrace others fully. We're always going to be guarded. I have one... Uh, man who's a friend, African-American, who's an attorney, now he's a judge, and highly accomplished, lovely person on all levels. And he has imposter syndrome. Like deep down, he keeps having what you described, that kind of that self-doubt thing that comes up. But for him, he grew up in a um, 
in a kind of a ghetto, uh, a really very, very deep poverty and a lot of violence. And now research shows that if you grow up in, in poverty and a lot of violence, it affects your whole nervous system and in a way that the trauma is locked in. So he has a kind of compartmentalized vulnerability in there that makes him feel like something's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. And it makes him feel like an imposter. And we all have some of that. Yeah. I mean, we all have kind of parts of our being where we feel really vulnerable, where we don't trust if others really knew us, that they'd, they'd respect us anymore. And uh, it takes a lot. It takes a really big commitment to love ourselves back into wholeness. It's like, to me, that's, if there's any one uh, commitment right at the front, the center of the spiritual path, it's that commitment to embrace the parts of ourselves we've pushed away. Mm. Absolutely. And so I want to actually talk to you about loving ourselves into wholeness. Um, Before I do, though, it just made me think of something where I realized about... It's about 10 years ago. I'm very heavily tattooed, covered, you know, and have been getting tattoos since literally my birthday when I turned 18 and legally could. I had been getting pierced before that. But what I realized, uh, so this was several years into getting tattooed, um, and this goes back about 10 years now. I realized that I was getting them because it, it was a very unworthiness thing for me. I wanted people to look at my tattoos instead of look at me. Mm-hmm. I didn't want people to see me. And uh, to such an extent that, I mean, I grew up in the punk rock and hardcore music scene and culture. So that's part of it. But th- the bigger thing for me was it took the attention off of me and the focus mm-hmm. off of me. And I had this realization and it was, uh, it was very big for me. It was, um, it was it was a very healing thing in a way, and I still get tattooed to this day, but I do so much more now out of my appreciation for the art. It's kind of too late to go back anyways at this point, but I don't get them anymore to, you know, to take attention away. And often, like, I'll get them in places where people can't see them just because they're meaningful to me. But anyways, so it runs very deeply, you know, and, and so even not that you need to act out and get tattoos, but I mean, people with plastic surgery or, you know, any number of things, buying very expensive clothes, whatever the case may be. It's just, it was very interesting for me to see how it played out in my own life and and to see how it does for others. And so anyways, I I love your example because I I call them false refuges. When we feeling bad about ourselves, we have, we all have a set of strategies on how to feel better, how to, either impress people or impress ourselves or do more or avoid attention. And what happens is the false refuge actually locks us into a smaller identity. We still feel like a small deficient person Mm. and we're just more defended and so on. So one of the, um, to me, you know, the hard, the hard part is that we generally fix on what we fixate our attention on where we think we're doing things wrong. You know, we, we're, we're always monitoring and, and noticing where we're falling short. And so for any of us that have hurt other people or find that we're caught in habits that are hurting ourselves or whatever, it's very hard to forgive ourselves. It's very hard to just come down to our good intentions. Like now you're much more creative with the tattooing. Right. It's very hard to forgive ourselves. It's very hard to embrace ourselves. So it takes a real training 
to do that. And I thought maybe one of the uh, guided meditations, if you were up for it, is we could just do a guided meditation on self-compassion. Please, I would love that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening right now or, or watching and you have something you're aware of that it's hard to accept yourself for or forgive yourself for or, or be kind to yourself for, you know, if, that's, if you've got something like that in your mind, we'll do a practice that um, I call the reign of self-compassion. And it's based, some of you might have heard of the acronym RAIN. It's a slightly different version of the acronym RAIN. So let yourself, you might close your eyes and make sure you're in a comfortable position and take some moments to feel your breath. And I invite you to take a few long deep breaths so that you inhale and extend the length of the in-breath. And then with the out-breath, feel the sensations of releasing the breath, of letting go. Breathing in deeply. And slow out-breath, relaxing outward, letting go. And just let the breath resume in its natural rhythm. Feel your breathing body. And bring to mind a situation that in some way illustrates when you feel stuck, when you feel like you're turning on yourself, you're at war with yourself, you're caught in feeling bad for something you've said or done. might be with another person where you feel like you've in some way lost your temper or been hurtful. It might be a way that you treat yourself. The reign of self-compassion, the acronym reign starts with R, which is to simply recognize, okay, I'm stuck. I'm in that at war with myself moment. I'm judging myself, I'm turned on myself, and just recognizing it. This is the first step of mindfulness, is to notice what's happening. And the A of RAIN is just to allow it all to be there right now. So you might sense the situation that's bringing it up, and sense the feelings that are coming up, and the thoughts that make up that feeling of down on yourself. And the A is just let it all be there. Allow it. We don't pause and allow what's going on. We can't begin to deepen our attention and really bring some healing. So the, the recognizing and allowing sets a stage to do some healing. Now the eye of rain means investigate. And we investigate with a very curious and gentle attention. And you might investigate it by sensing, well, what are you believing about yourself? Are you believing that you're a failure, that you're unlovable? Are you believing that in some way you uh, will never get it right? What are you believing? Are you believing that you'll always be rejected? 
we investigate and mostly the investigations in the body. How does it feel when you're turned on yourself, when you're down on yourself? Where do you feel it in your body? So investigate and feel into your throat, your chest, your belly. So you can notice, okay, so this is when I'm in the trance of unworthiness. This is how it feels. This is what it's like to be down on myself. So you've recognized, you've allowed, you're investigating. Now the end of RAIN is to nourish with self-compassion. And I'd invite you to put your hand on your heart at this point. If you've never done this before, it's very interesting exploration. Just a gentle touch and and let the, you might vary the touch till it feels gentle so that your intention is to bring kindness to the part of you that's disturbed or distressed or upset in some way. And one way of bringing kindness is just to feel that touch and send a message to yourself that you feel would be healing. You might sense what this part most needs right now, the part of you that's upset, the part of you that's suffering. What does it most need to be reminded of? What does it most need to remember, to trust? Sometimes when I'm sending a message to myself, I'll simply say, it's okay, sweetheart. Or Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen master, says a message is, darling, I care about this suffering. A Hawaiian healer uses the message, I'm sorry, and I love you. What words might convey care that you can send to your own heart? It's difficult sending kindness to yourself. You might imagine and bring to mind someone who's ex- an expression of compassion and wisdom to you. It could be a spiritual figure, or a grandparent, a child, a dog. Just imagine that being's love and energy running through your hands and pouring into your heart. Nourishing your own being with love. After we do the steps of RAIN, recognizing, allowing, investigating, and nourishing, the key moment is to notice what happens after RAIN. Just like after a gentle rainfall, the flowers can bloom. Just sense who you are when you're no longer living inside the thoughts and the beliefs and feelings of a bad self. If you don't believe anything's wrong with you, who are you? If you're no longer believing that anything's wrong with you, who are you? And just rest in that. Rest in that spacious, tender awareness that's right here. And as you're ready, take a few more full breaths and open your eyes. And here we are again. I love that practice. <laughs> you uh, you share shared that as well at length um, in this uh, program you're doing with Jack. And for some reason, 
I don't know how, but I had never heard of it before. Um, and I know it's attributed to another woman. Um, I forgot her name. Michelle McDonald. The, the yeah. history of rain is about 20 years ago. Mm. Michelle McDonald coined the, the acronym, and then it's gone through some changes. Sure. Um, I added in the heart piece, yeah. which feels real important to it. But e- what we just did now, Chris, is actually even a little different than what I taught in the power of awareness. Okay, I thought... Yeah, the, the N in this one is nourish yourself with self-compassion. And then the non-identification what, is what comes after you've done that. Mm. And then you just rest in that larger sense of being. Right, right. Yeah. So... Well, let's talk about the larger sense of being, if we could, for a moment, because I... I just want to, before I forget, just yeah. say that if anybody's listening and you like that meditation, uh, on tarabrock.com, my website, slash self-compassion, no hyphen, no space, mm-hmm. you'll find the meditation and a whole um, document on it. Yeah, and... and- Beyond just that, uh, Tara has an incredible library of meditations as well. So allow me, please, to plug that for you. Because (laughs) like I told you before we start, even uh, in my last book, I I include a link to your webpage because it's just so wonderful um, that those are there for people. So, um, but yeah, so so resting into this natural awareness, um, I know it's something we didn't plan on talking about, but I think it's something that... Uh, is important for people to know, you know, because we're talking about the early stages of the path and going within and healing and learning to love ourselves. But what are we moving towards? What is this natural awareness? I mean, I know it goes by many different names from the traditions, but uh, in your experience, natural awareness. Yeah. So we're going towards reality, which is what we really are. And when we step out of thoughts, step out of all the stories and just sense, well, what's right here? You know, if we just get that clean and clear, what we discover is quite simple and pure. There's a, an innate wakefulness right here, just a wakeful awareness. There's a quality of openness. There's no center or nothing that's solid. And there's a tenderness or you might say a warmth, which is a very intrinsic uh, loving or caring about whatever we encounter. So in a way, what we're going towards is really the essence of what we are. It's realizing that essence, that goodness, and then being able to live from it. And I think the path is really including both, that we, we can get many glimpses. Probably each of you listening have had glimpses, whether it's in nature, feeling that wonder when you're looking at the night sky or looking at the gleam in a child's eye or, feel, or lovemaking or music. You get these glimpses of that sense of aliveness and awareness and presence. But it, the, what brings the spiritual path alive is when we're actually in our day-to-day life, really living from that openness and care. So that it's a sense of, rather than a self-centeredness, it's a sense of we, of belonging to a larger world and, and serving and savoring that whole larger world. Going back to, yes, the, uh, that sense of separation, dissolving that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, there it is right there. Yeah, exactly. I love that. And I know that's kind of a tricky question to ask because I know once we start putting these 
definitions and ideas around it, it kind of takes us away from it a bit. But it's still very helpful, I've found, to have, you know, some kind of idea of what it is or what others' experience of it has been. But it's like the old saying, I can tell you what a peach tastes like, but if you really want to know, you need to bite into it yourself. So That's exactly. And one of the big illusions is that we're trying to get somewhere. Right. It we begin to taste and experience that that essence really when we relax back. Yeah. Yeah. And we get out of thoughts and relax back and just notice right here this moment. Mm. It shines through. It does. It does. Beautiful. So I know we've got about 10, 12 minutes left. Um, I'd, I'll tell you what. I'm going to let you choose which topic we're going to close <laughs> on. Um, a couple of, I mean, there is the topic of forgiveness, which I, I know we've kind of talked already a bit about that area of things, I, but there's never enough talk, I think, about healing and forgiveness. We could talk about that, or we could also talk about this next generation of truth seekers, um, you know, cause there is in a way a bit of a passing of the torch. And, um, I find myself in an interesting position where I don't, not just I, many of many people, uh, like myself want to make sure that these great wisdom teachings are carried down, you know, and that they're offered and honored, um, in a way, uh, that's pure to them. So w- what do you feel like talking about? You want to talk about forgiveness or you want to talk about Next generation. I'm good either way. I can see a way that they go one into the other. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> I'm ever ambitious. <laughs> <laughs> I like your style. <laughs> but um, if I, just to say with forgiveness, it feels to me like if we look at the evolution of consciousness, we're moving from uh, that kind of separate egoic state where we quickly go into judgment of ourselves and others. Yes into that place of sensing we-ness, that, that sense of belonging and, and connection. And cultivating a forgiving heart is part of the pathway into that. And it's really this next generation of spiritualists that is going to be moving forward on that. And I often use the phrase unreal other, that when we're in a egoic state, you and I would be... Um, perceiving each other as the other out there, kind of two-dimensional being that we hope approves of us or likes us, versus uh, sensing the, the light and awareness that's looking through both of our eyes is really the same, and that which is listening is really the same. And interestingly, in the whole evolution of the brain, we are developing more and more capacity to see past the mask and sense um, our togetherness. And that is what the prefrontal cortex can do. And so I really look at it as this next generation is going to go much, much farther in those widening circles of belonging where rather than the racism and violence of racism and the violence of sexism and the violence of classism, we'll be able to look at each other and see and, and, and a true namaste where we see the light of awareness shining through. So where the work is, is where that's not happening. Where each one of us in our own lives, and we all have it, have somebody or some groups of people that we have created into other that is in some way bad or wrong. That that person should be different. And that's the place where the work is. It's like most people have this idea that forgiving is a good idea until they really have to forgive something. And then it's, 
you know, then it gets hairy. And so one of the metaphors, Chris, that has most been helpful to me when we're caught in an unreal other that's bad, this person should be different, this is, you know, is um, to imagine you're walking in the woods and you see a, a little dog by a tree and the dog and you bend over to pet it and then it lurches at you and its fangs are bared and it's, you know, it's aggressive. And you go from being friendly to being really angry at it. But then you see that it's, it's one of its legs is in a trap. And then you shift again to feeling a sense of, oh, you poor thing. Well, so it is when it comes to somebody that we're blaming. If we can begin to sense how that person's got their leg in a trap, how in some way there's um, unmet needs, sorrow, fear, insecurity that's causing that behavior. So when I work with forgiveness with people, there's a few steps, but the first step when we've been injured by someone is not to try to forgive them. The first step is to bring first self-compassion to the place that feels hurt. And if we bypass that, it's going to be a kind of premature forgiveness that's not substantial. Right. But if the first step is to say, okay, this is hurt, this is hurting, and bring kindness towards ourselves, then something softens and opens and we can begin to look and see past the trance of unreal other and be able to get, oh, that person has their leg in a trap. Yeah. There's there's a phrase that vengeance is a lazy form of grief. I love that. Yeah, when yeah. we're flashing out, it's it's a lazy way of trying to cover the wounded place. Right. So where this fits into the next generation um, is that it's really up to all of us, but I'm saying you in the sense that the spirit of um, past generations has been to move more and more out of that egoic story and more and more into the tr living from the truth of who we are. And to me, the main domains that that needs to play out is really in our society that we don't make earth an unreal other, mm. that the earth is our living body and we sense our, our, our compassion to the earth. That's carrying forward the teachings that we see that we have implicit racism, but we're willing to face that and learn about it and wake up from it because we can't be whole on this planet if we have one whole domain of people that aren't considered part of our being. You know, mm -hmm. So those are the places uh, that I actually think we purify the teachings um, by living them because each generation needs to bring the teachings alive in a way that's most relevant to the planet in that time. Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you this one final thing in relation to that, because it is very inspiring for me to see these younger people, many of them really stepping up. And even if it's not in a spiritual context, they're just, you know, they're really showing up and being of service and learning, you know, to be more loving in the world. But I do speak with a lot of uh, younger people that feel very jaded and mm. are very cynical um, and skeptic to the whole even notion of spirituality, something that personally I experienced when I was younger. And I think to a certain degree there is something healthy, you know, to have some skepticism, um, you know, some discernment, but it can also go, I think, uh, a little overboard. And so 
on the one hand, we do have this wonderful, just greater tolerance blossoming in our in our youth. And, and you know, we mentioned racism and sexism, homophobia. These things are starting to fall mm-hmm. by the wayside, though, of course, it's still there, but it's decreasing. So for those that are still, though, jaded, going back to the spirituality aspect, when they hear, you know, some someone say, like, it's all one, a true namaste, um, what would you say to that? When they, when they, someone that takes issue, like, yeah, right, like, it sounds nice, but it's, it's just nice talk, nice ideas. What would you say to something like that, to more, the skeptic? More what I would do is ask. Sure. And the question I would say is, when is it, do you, that you feel most fulfilled or gratified or what is it that you most enjoy or take pleasure in? What do you want? Mm. And, and I, I think that inside the jadedness there's an intelligence, just like you do, sure. which is not wanting to get kind of carried on some uh, current of delusion. <laughs> and I think it's, it's that kind of truth-seeking in a person. So I really honor that. Mm. I honor the jadedness, but I think it's also important to ask, what, where do you feel most sincere? Where do you feel that, you're bring, that you want to unfold the best of yourself? What is most important to you? And start with that. Because I don't feel like spirituality is something out there. Right. right. Just every one of us has our own version uh, of of unfolding into the best that we can be, mm-hmm. and and it, and it always, on some level, has to do with a deeper capacity to care, to speak truth, to hear truth, to see truth, to live from wholeness. Oh, beautiful! I think that's a wonderful way to to wrap this up, and and I couldn't agree more. I I will often tell people. Maybe you feel compelled once you step on the path to go to the Himalayas and leave everything, move to an ashram. Great. Maybe you'll be living in a loft in New York City, staying up till three as an artist, taking little breaks to mindfully breathe. And that's your path. But yeah, that's it. Finding it, what your passion is. So so thank you for, for sharing that. And thank you for your time. Once again, for viewers, listeners, please visit Tara at her website, tarabrock.com. There is so many incredible resources there. And Tara, you also host a podcast uh, with the MindPod Network. And I will include a link to that as well. I don't know the link off the top of my head, but we'll make sure so anyone watching or listening to this, uh, the link will be in the description box so you can check out her podcast. There are lots of great teachings. Uh, and was there anything, Tara, that I didn't cover that you would like to, to share? Or do you feel like we got... Everything we, out that needed to get you out. Touched a lot, Chris, <laughs> and I really love the spirit of what you're doing because I feel like it's really having us all face towards what is it that we can really trust in ourselves and each other, and really nourishing it. And beautiful, beautiful work. Thank you, thank you, and, and well, obviously, I deeply honor yours too. So, thank you, and thank you for your time so much. Mm, blessings. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? 
Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.